Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We talked about this yesterday. Uh, and, of course, the uh, the bombing of uh, oil reserves, oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, uh, effectively taking out about 5% of the daily, the world's daily uh, production of oil. Uh, Donald Trump uh, convinced it's it's Iran. He's locked and loaded, as he says. Um, but then many are waiting now to see what actually Saudi Arabia has to say about any of this. What does it mean to world prices? What does it mean uh, politically? What does it mean to us here in Canada? Let's bring in Ferry uh, DeKirchhoff. He is a senior fellow, faculty of social sciences, graduate school of public and international affairs, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ferry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. With pleasure. So give us an update here. Do we have any more information from Saudi Arabia? How, how, uh, what is the extent of the damage here to this infrastructure? The fact that the production has resumed means probably that they've managed to control most of the fire, but it still means a drop in 5% of the production, which will have a major, is already starting to have a major impact on the gas at the pump. But I, I, I think that the, the real issue is far less the ability of Aramco, which is the largest uh, company in the world, in fact, in the oil and gas sector. It, has, it is producer, it's transformer, it's refinery. And what is really harsh on that one is that whatever you think of Saudi Arabia, at least the Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman was trying to bring Aramco into a public offering, an IPO. And that, that attack, I don't know to what extent it will have an impact on the IPO or will it delay it, but it will certainly have an impact on investors thinking, am I going to invest in the three or four or five billion dollars that has been put up given the vulnerability of the, of the installation? So to me, the attack had several objectives. Now, do we know more in terms of who's done it? You, you, you follow the news as well as I do. Uh, Trump thinks that he knows, but he doesn't say. Uh, the Saudis are saying that it's, uh, it's Iran. But again, we don't know. The latest we have is that it, there, there are hints that it may have been shot from the border of Iraq and Iran, but from Iran. Uh, if that is the case, it raises the whole issue of what will be the reaction. But let's, let's take it bit by bit here. First of all, let's assume for the sake of argument that Iran did it, okay, just for a moment. Now, what Iran did it is really the next question. Is it the revolutionary guard, the Pazdaran, who, are, who were increasingly worried that Rouhani and Trump were going to meet and there were going to be yet another round of, you know, JCPOA kind of negotiation? And I think that legitimately a lot of people in Iran, having seen what Trump did to the GCPOA, the, the Joint Common Program of Action on the nuclear side, a lot of Iranians are worried that Trump cannot be taken to, at his word. And, and, and so for the Pazdaran to do this kind of action, they have the means, they have the capability, is, is to prove to the Saudis that they can hit if they wish, 
Uh, they're screwing up completely, of course, the potential meeting between Trump and Rouhani at the United Nations. But it raises a for- formidable risk as to what can happen in that region, which has been the bane of the history since 1945. So how does this change the discussion? Are you surprised these installations weren't more or better protected? You know what? I'm sure they have protection, but they're, they're pretty much in the hinterland. The problem is we're dealing with crews and drones, and that's the key issue. We're dealing now with an entirely new war machine, which is no longer a battlefield, and it is no longer high-flying planes. We're talking about drones and crews, and the crews... Even the crews are getting more and more uh, effective. You know that Brother Putin is preparing a a cruise that is basically unavoided because it is directional as opposed to, and and it's hypersonic. So we're we're getting into a matter and matter world that you were describing a moment ago about the attack in Mississauga. We're going into a very, very weird world. Now, Okay, so would they, would they be better protected next time around? Would there be more efficient system? The question is, can we get back to a negotiation table in for the whole region there, including with the Palestinian? And, and that's where, unfortunately, the Western leadership, particularly coming from Trump, has been haphazard, haggast, and occasionally totally irrational. So the leader of the free world is not doing what it did for the past 70 years. And the Europeans don't have the wherewithal. They themselves had the problem with Brexit, with Germany, the German economy going tanking. So we're, we're in a state of, I, I was calling it hypersonic instability. And what is going on in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, to a great extent, is both a follow-up of Trump having walked out of the GCPOA mm. and also Mohammed bin Salman, four years of war against poor Yemen, 25 million people, half of them nearly dying of hunger, and still Mohammed bin Salman, who's got the greatest uh, army uh, equipped by the American, is incapable of assuaging the, the Houthi in Yemen. So we're talking about a ball game that is endless. Now, Again, I'm very worried because Iran doesn't want war. Trump doesn't want war. But that means we could still have a war. How, um, and and as you mentioned, my next question was, this all started with uh, Donald Trump pulling the United States out of the the nuclear deal. How does Donald Trump resolve this? How does he turn this into a win after causing this disruption? The, the one thing that I, I, I think that is happening in the Middle East is that former enemies are becoming allies because the Arab world and the Israeli are so worried about Iran that you don't have that fracture, fracture that used to happen now, all the way, by the way, to the detriment of the Palestinian, but we'll leave that aside for now. Uh, whether that helps Netanyahu getting elected, possibly. But for Trump, there's, there's a quandary. Either he looks at 2020 and doesn't want to engage in a war which would demolish his assertion that he would get the Americans out of useless war, 
Or then, but then he loses his credibility if indeed it is proven that Iran did it, because it still remains to be proven. But then Iran will have a pass on that. They had a pass on the drone. They're, they're getting more and more assertive <clears throat> and maybe forcing Trump to start a negotiation with Iran on a very poor ledger. So the, 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 other, the other side is, does he have a retaliation, uh, some measure of retaliation, taking out some of the Iranian uh, oil fields? Then we're getting into a horrifying ball game uh, where the price of gold skyrockets the way it did in 1973, and we've got a worldwide reception guaranteed. Do you, do you want it darker? <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that's good enough, Perry. Um, uh, how does this affect... Uh, uh, Canada. How does this affect Canada? How does this affect the United States? How does it affect prices here, especially with pipeline discussions that or debates well, I, we've I been think having? That, uh, <clears throat> the first thing you've heard already from Jason Kenney is that maybe the Keystone will get built faster than it has. Uh, the price of oil going up will be good for Alberta, I hope, because they badly need it. But will it be a temporary duration? Because after all, we're talking about 5% of the, the oil production. And if the, the, the Saudi resume in production, the, 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 the hike in the oil price may not be very, very lengthy. But I still think that it will... Re- have bring a reassessment of who are the reliable supplier. And I think to that extent, it will also help maybe whoever comes to power in Canada in, on the 21st of October in terms of the pipeline going to the, going, going to the, uh, the, the Pacific. How does this change the discussion on that pipeline, Ferry, on the well, trans I, Honestly, I think that people will have to come to term realizing because of the security of our supply and the open market going to, well, China may not, well, if China still buys our stuff, if they don't buy everything, they would be quite interested in buying oil. India will too. So you could have a, a rethinking of where the oil should come from and that would be a useful discussion and i think that on 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 the let's say on the liberal side uh the environmental concern will remain up and there but on the other hand if we're part of a solution to the oil supply in the world or partial of it uh, because don't forget that, what is it, 60% of the oil goes to the, the Strait of Hormuz, and that's, that's about, you know, no, it's 58%, sorry. Uh, we, there's there's going to be a global rethink here, and, I, and that can only be positive for Canada. Uh, and, and, uh, and the U.S. Will, will have to maybe look at speeding up some of those uh, pipelines. So I, I look at it from, from a, unfortunately, a positive because it's unfortunate what happened yeah. over there, but it's positive for Canada in, in general terms. And maybe finally we will get our barrel of oil at a price that is competitive, that is like the world market, as opposed to the 20% discount because we have it re- refined in Texas. So, Ferry, where does that lead the discussion on climate change? Five to ten years ago, the discussion was all about being self-sufficient, energy self-sufficient, the U.S. pretty much there. Then all of a sudden that fell by the wayside as we became that, and then it was all about the environment. Has this changed the discussion? You know what? I think we talk well, but we don't do much. I think the discussion on environment will continue unabated, but I think at the same time, Western Canada will be, quote, rehabilitated, unquote, in being a safe provider of 
the regular energy that is oil and gas. And, and, I, and I think that I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to bemoan the, the, the environmentalists because they bring a real issue to the table. But I think we will have to rethink the way we approach reaching our target and not ban oil as a odd product, but oil as what remains the stable producer until all the alternative energies, nuclear, uh, hydro, and all that, will eventually compensate for for what the oil reducing its reserves i i you know it's 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 very hard to in canada we've we've had that dialogue for years mm-hmm. it's, it's you, you can be an environmentalist but we are a major producer we hold three the the third largest reserve on non-conventional oil it is very difficult to say that canada will never be will all of a sudden not become a an oil and gas producer and i think that even the most uh, uh, rabid environmentalists uh, recognize that, but they're trying to find a way to ease up and reinforce our commitment to alternative sources of energy. But the bottom line is that for the foreseeable future, oil and gas will remain the mainstay in terms of energy. Ferry de Kirchhoff has been with us, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Ferry, a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Always appreciate it. Nice having me. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.